Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie back with our weekly podcast. Hope everyone's doing fine and had a uh, really relaxing day yesterday, whatever it was for you. I don't know. You could take that out. Um, we're talking about a really very interesting subject today, topic, diagnosis, however you want to look at it. But I just think that it's something that we've got to start to discuss in the open. Very rare do we understand what this means. We have the term thrown around a lot. We have variations of the term thrown around a lot. And I think it's very confusing. So I think it's an important topic to talk about because as I go through my day, I see at least one to two children being diagnosed a month with this issue, syndrome, disorder. And I think the more we have an awareness, the more we can assess it, treat it, and minimize the kind of aftermath that comes with this kind of stuff. Because when people hear these words, unfortunately, labels are damaging at times. And I think that they tend to really impact many people in very different ways and not always good ways. And for instance, I, it's very difficult when I have a child who may have a disorder, no matter what it is, and really struggle as they become teenagers, especially, to not feel broken, having to take medication if needed or in different therapies. And because of all that, I really want to raise the awareness of this so we can give you, the listener, some tools, some education, some power to be able to minimize the impact on your children who may be afflicted with any of these disorders, but specifically this one today. And today we're talking about Asperger's syndrome. And it is a syndrome on the spectrum of pervasive developmental disorders or what we used to typically call autism. So Asperger's is a syndrome on the spectrum disorders of autism or pervasive developmental disorders. We have an expert coming on today, and it's not your typical expert that you would think is a doctor or a psychologist or someone who has actually gone to school to learn how to deal with this issue and has treated it, but it's actually someone who has their own personal experience with the disorder, as well as discussing their struggles with it, their identification of it, and how they have turned it into becoming something of a platform for them to be able to get the awareness out to others, similarly to what we're doing today. So stay tuned, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Stay tuned, one eight five five sophie now Come on back. We're talking about Asperger's. Joining me today is my guest, Lynn Soraya. She is a Asperger's, I'm going to call her an Asperger's person until she can better define for me what it is that she does. But I think she's going to really give us a huge piece of this disorder that we've never really been able to talk about or look at from that perspective, because it's that perspective that is highly important to me to get out to all of you so that you understand it better and demystify it, not have our children especially walking around feeling broken or not good enough or whatever else comes along with it because she's going to be able to tell us from start to finish really the impact that Asperger's has had on her. Lynn, are you with me? I'm here. Hey, how are you? I'm good. You? I'm good. Thank you for joining me today. I just I want you to talk a little bit about yourself so that my listeners have a better understanding of the perspective that you're coming from, because your perspective is really the most important part of this, not the doctor one and not the treatment one, but the actual life one. So take it away. Okay. Um, so I actually grew up not knowing that I was on the spectrum. Um, and I, I use the term on the autism spectrum as just a, a term that um, I feel a little bit more comfortable with 
because there are a lot of ins and outs in how we talk about autism and related disorders or, con- or conditions. I tend to prefer conditions as, as a term. Right. Um, I grew up not knowing, um, like a lot of people who grew up before the, the condition made it into the DSM. Yeah, before it was really had a spotlight on it and people knew what to say or how to group those symptoms. Right, right. So, you know, I had a lot of similar presentations to, say, typical autism, what people might think of as autism, you know, classical autism, right. except right. that I did have speech. In fact, I had precocious speech, but it was different speech. So, you know, there was a period of time where I had my own words for things. You know, I didn't quite get that you had to use words that actually meant something to other people as well as yourself. You know, I, I might memorize things and repeat them rather than actually, you know, learning in, in the more typical way where, you know, you go to baby talk and then right. you move on. Like right, that. right, right. And, you know, I think that's important that you say that because many people listening, especially parents, are going to say they get confused because they have these children who are precocious, but that it doesn't fit. And so they don't know what to do with it a lot of times. And I think that you saying this is really helpful to them because... They're confused by that. Here's my child who's only, you know, nine months who's speaking, basically, but it's not right. Yeah, I mean, if you look beneath it, there are differences. Yeah. That's that's the key piece. And and, People need to to look very carefully at the pragmatics of language, because that's kind of where things tend to be an issue. You know, I I stutter, as you can probably hear. Actually, Um, I couldn't. Very good. (laughs) Um... And, but then there's also the question of, you know, a lot of my early speech was stuff I memorized off of the TV, you know. Right, exactly. And maybe you wouldn't have recognized it was essentially echolalia um, right. because and, I wouldn't repeat it immediately. And, and that's a misnomer because many parents think their little Johnny is at nine months of age really reading or really speaking, but he's really just spitting back what he's heard and not understanding and I, any of the, the meaning of it say it's like a parrot, you know, in that sense, you know, like, there is meaning to it, and sometimes it might not be the exact meaning that it should be. So, in my case, a lot of times I would repeat certain things, and, you know, the, the meaning would be more or less correct, so I was communicating something. It had a meaning, so it wasn't just random repetition, but so it, had, it was... So it had some context. Yeah. But it was, it was atypical. And then how did you transition through these struggles and get through school and be able to be successful, especially back um, in a time when well, it really wasn't I, uh, recognized? I was actually um, in school. Right. And um, my parent teacher noticed something wasn't right. And um, she basically went to my parents and said that, you know, I can't promote her to the first grade. You know, she she's academically smart i see you know intelligence however she can't hold her own with the other kids and the term they used in those days was you know emotionally immature that i wasn't progressing socially along the same trajectory as my peers so she basically said to my parents you know listen um we don't want her to feel bad about herself. Right. We don't want to use the term laid you know um left back or, or held back. So why don't we, why don't we, we'll tell the, the class this, we'll tell her and we'll tell the class this. Um, she'll be my special assistant next year, and I'll work with her. 
Interesting. And she, that's what she did. And then, you know, from that point on, they, they took me, put me into a regular first grade. And, and of course, all of this was back when, you know, they recognized I was different, but they couldn't put a finger on what that was. Got so they it. just worked with it as much as they could. And so that worked out or not really? It did. It did. Um, one piece that went along with it is, um, you know, my kindergarten teacher also put forward um, the name of a friend that uh, she had worked with, with other kids who had differences. Um, so, and, and, you know, some of their success stories have been with kids, you know, back then were called hyperactive. You know, today it would be ADD or ADHD. Um, so they had some experience working with kids who had different profiles and skills and abilities. Um, and so instead of going to, say, a daycare or being a latchkey kid, they sent me to this program in the evening. Got it. Or after school. So they were able and, to kind of design something for you. Mm-hmm. But not really knowing. Very, but they didn't really know what they were treating or what it was addressing, did they? Or had they identified that stuff? No. I, I did not know that I was on the spectrum until I was an adult. Got it. I, I dealt with you know, a lot of the stuff, and my parents dealt with a lot of that stuff without really a romance, you know, just yeah. trying to understand. I think, you know, in some ways my parents were better equipped to do that because I see a lot of my own traits in my parents. And you, um, because they but, did it, so you're saying because they did it in themselves, either knowingly or not, they were able to navigate it, didn't stick out maybe too much to them, and they kind of just moved it forward. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, when I was, you know, bullied, Right. My father had been through exactly the same experience, so he could relate. Right. And he could, you know, he had coping mechanisms that he developed in order, you know, and he could share those with me. So I think that, you know, that helped me a lot. Yeah. But the program I was in, I think, also helped a great deal because, you know, what you hear from a lot of kids or a lot of adults who, who grew up like I did, um, you hear that, you know, they didn't have early success in terms of social skills. Um, you know, they tried to connect with other kids and, and things went horribly. And, you know, when that happens, you know, you, you develop a, a sort of fear. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the now identified symptoms of this syndrome and see if you can, mm -hmm. you agree with the way that it's been classified for the American Psychiatric Association and in general for the world. You see it mainly as a significant trouble in social situations, pretty high IQs most of the time, and parents who notice that their kids have some kind of interaction with children from a social perspective that may not be working as well. You know, those kinds of things. Are you in agreement with the way that it's classified now for the DSM and the way that it's diagnostically looked at? Well, I think that, um, you know, some of the proposed inclusion in the DSM-5, I think, makes a lot of sense, and that is the sensory issues, that is huge. So you think that's and been think, underplayed in the yeah. past? And a lot, of, a lot of adults on the spectrum will tell you that those, that those, um, those issues that they have can be some of the more um, challenging the, aspects. Absolutely, and I can speak for that, honestly, as, the, as a physician for many children who have it, it's very oftentimes the most debilitating issue because it creates an anxiety or a ADHD-like picture that kind of disrupts a whole lot of stuff in their life. Well, and I think also that it's been underplayed as a component of the social the social challenges. Right. 
because, you know, for example, this is an odd little thing, but, you know, whistling, like high-pitched noises are particularly painful for me. Right. So if somebody whistles when they talk, you know, you're trying to deal with that... Irritant. Social, you know, right. and that takes your attention away from actually trying to socialize right. and talk to the person. Right. Interesting. Or a lot of people talk about eye, t- eye contact being uncomfortable or even painful. And I can tell you sometimes when I'm having trouble speaking, looking somebody in the eye actually makes it harder for me to articulate than not. Because I move all the time. There are a lot to keep up with. Um, so I think there's a lot of components of that that um, underlie a lot of things in ways that people don't think about. Got it. All right. Do you mind taking a call? Let's take a, a caller who's calling in. Steve, are you with us? Yes, it's Steve. Hey, Steve, you're with uh, Dr. Sophie and Lynn. We're talking about Asperger's. What's your question? Well, it's a multiple-part question. I have a, uh, a friend, and she has a son with Asperger's. And I've seen, you know, he's uh, nine years old, and I've seen him run around the house, and, and sometimes he's really quiet, and sometimes he's really hyper. And so I watch uh, the mom interact with him, and I'm just wondering, can can he understand her and can he understand her reasoning behind what she says? And then also, does he understand consequences? Interesting. What do you think, Lynn? Well, I think that we can understand we can understand consequences. I do think that that people on the autism spectrum tend to think differently. So he may be focusing on something completely different than what she's focusing on, and she may need to help him understand that. I wondered, like you're asking this. Steve, because you don't see him responding to what she's saying? Yeah, it's very frustrating. He just kind of continues, it seems, off in his own world doing his own thing. And yet there's times where he does pay attention and does exactly what you ask him to do. Hmm. What, what do you think about that, Lynn? One way you see that happen sometimes is if, if, if somebody is very, very overwhelmed, especially sensorially, because you hear people talk about you know a person with autism appearing deaf right? There are times when, you know, it, it takes a while for somebody to process speech, make meaningful speech out of it in their brain, and then decide what to do about it. And if a person is overwhelmed and, and you know, running around and things like that, that would speak to me that maybe that's somebody who's, who's overwhelmed at that moment in time. Yeah, either they're um, having an overload of sensory input or, you know, make sure that there's not another disorder going on. Because many times in, in the umbrella of Asperger's, there could be an anxiety disorder or an ADHD or a mood disorder. So I think that's also part of the process of looking at this child. So also, I, can I follow up with one more question? Because she has two children with, that, are, that have autism. One has Asperger's, one doesn't. And so is it genetic or what are the odds that one woman would have two children with two variations of autism? Oh, you can have that one, Lynn. <laughs> um, nobody has firmly said that there is, you know, that they, under, that they know the full well the causes of, of autism or Asperger's. But um, there have been areas like, you know, I think it was Yale who uh, put out a, a study saying that they felt that autism and Asperger's syndrome were part of a class of autistic conditions that were probably some of the most heritable conditions they've seen. In my experience, if I look at my family, I see a lot of either, you know, probably undiagnosed autistic 
or, you know, at least autistic traits. So I think that there is a genetic component. You know, there may be other factors involved, but I don't know that anybody's proven what those factors are. Yeah, and I agree. So, I mean, yes, you can see it in family members as it trickles out, but in general, there's been no real hard and fast research or evidence that's proven it. But I think you can see if you put parents and kids together or other family members that are extended, you'll see similarities that would connect to how you got there today with this child. It's so frustrating for her, too. I'll let you go. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. But it's so frustrating for her because the schools that they go to don't have any kind of special programming. It doesn't seem like they really want to even investigate it. So they just throw them in as like a learning disabled child or something, and they're really lost and misdiagnosed and just not getting any kind of help or education. And so it's, I don't know if anything is being done on that with public schools, but um, it sure would be great if something could be done because it's, you, I mean, you would know, but I mean, for everyone listening, it's so frustrating for a parent of a child with autism. You're, no, you're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons that we're doing this as a topic today, but I think, you know, that speaks to a greater passion of Lynn's, and she'll maybe talk a little bit about it, of how she's an advocate for children with disabilities, and specifically this one. Okay, well, thanks for your time, and I'll be listening to the whole podcast. All right, thanks. Lynn, so, um, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, I we all know the schools are not equipped to be able to handle these things, diagnose these children necessarily, or at least follow through with treatment plans that are put together, because, you know, the money isn't there is the bottom line. So how do you work in a... in what you do as an advocate to support this, raise awareness, etc. Well, the biggest thing that I do, you know, is, is trying to share my story, and that's part of why, why I write, because I hear a lot of, there are a lot of teachers who don't know how to interact with kids. Right. There's a lot of preconceptions about what a kid with autism or Asperger's can do. There's a lot of preconceptions about what's going on in there that may not be. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done just in educating people. Right. So you're, um, you're basically raising the awareness and t- through your story, but you know, letting people I mean, know. I've gotten a lot of letters and a lot of, you know, I, I have a number of, of, of teachers who actually follow my Twitter feed and things like that, and, and I get questions from them. You know, well, I have a student that's doing this. How would I, you know, what's going on there? You know, and, and so that's some of that. Um, and, and there's a couple of people I work with who they're doing a lot with regard to IEPs and things like that. But, but you're right. There's a, a lot of infrastructure that, that is lacking sometimes. Good. And, and I'm really, like with anything else, I think the more we push, the more we keep raising awareness, educate, the more that you're going to see things change. But the government is always typically slower to implement a lot of that stuff. Let's take another caller, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Hillary, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. You're with Lynn and Dr. Sophie. We're talking about Asperger's today. Hi. Okay, so I have a question here that I'm just always curious about. I don't understand the difference between Asperger's and autism and PDD. And I've heard all three, and I know they're somehow related, but I don't understand the difference between the three. Great question. Lynn, you want to take it? There's actually been a lot of debate about that. There are some who would say that, you know, there's very little difference between, say, high-functioning autism and Asperger's. In today's world, and today's diagnostic um, manual, the difference, at least between Asperger's and autism, is um, that 
children with, with Asperger's or adults with Asperger's do not have typically a developmental delay in terms of intelligence. Um, and they typically develop language on schedule. But as we talked about a little bit earlier in the, in the discussion, you know, it may be slightly different language. More classic autism is, you know, typically you have some kind of a language delay. There may be some regression involved there, meaning, you know, they developed language and then lost it. There also may be, you know, intellectual disability attached to it. Um, and then PDD tends to be you know, somewhere in between, something that it's, it's clearly some kind of autism, but it doesn't quite neatly fit into either one of those categories. I guess that's kind of a high level how I've understood them. Do you have right. anything to uh, add there? No, you're absolutely right. I think really to try to define the deficit, but coming from a place of strengths and needs is the way that we look at anybody that's either going to be on the spectrum, whether they fall under the autistic spectrum, PDD or Asperger's, you look at their strengths, you look at their needs, you don't look at what is wrong or what is weak. And then you build a plan and based on what those strengths and needs are, that's where you really find yourself falling diagnostically somewhere. So that Number one, insurances can pay because that's a big thing. If you don't meet medical necessity for a disorder, you don't have the insurance pick, uh, kicking in. So that's why there's a lot of subtleties with diagnoses. But in order to land on the correct diagnosis, the issue is to identify what the strengths are and what the needs are, and that kind of guides you. And then you follow the criteria from the DSM to be able to give you what label you're going to put on it for the majority of the symptoms so that you can get moving on the treatment plan, but also from the uh, side of insurance to be able to support and pay for it and meet medical necessity. But in reality, I'm sure from my experience, this, there's very little to subtle differences in a lot of these children. Okay. Do you, do you have a child with this? Well, my child was diagnosed with PDD, and I, supposedly the doctor that I took her to is amazing. And she's hit all of her milestones. She gets all A's and B's. She has no behavioral issues whatsoever. I just don't think she has it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't hear anything that sounds like she has anything. Do you, Lynn? She's emotionally behind. Immature. I would say she's immature. Is her, like, she, and she doesn't understand consequences, and she doesn't, she's fearless. Like, she would take up with Charles Manson in a heartbeat and say, I love your tattoo. That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. She scares me. She frightens me. Just she has no, I mean, but there's a sweet spirit about her that like you don't want to break, but yet she's got to understand, like she's, you know, 11 years old and she totally believes in Santa Claus. Like well, you could not convince her. And so she doesn't fit in with the normal middle schoolers. So it sounds yet, like she's an A and B student. Well, it sounds like yeah, in intellect really doesn't have a whole always have a whole lot to do with emotional maturity. But I mean, Linda, it sounds like she has no stranger anxiety and kind of blurs not a fantasy and a reality. But you know, maybe she's just growing. Her EQ is going to grow differently than her IQ. I, I mean, I, I would have to ask personally. I would have to ask some more probing questions. That and, and obviously, I'm not I'm not a doctor of any kind. So speculation you know about it would be a bit uncomfortable for me but it does sound like there's a certain difficulty in maybe reading social cues that would normally trigger anxieties yeah yeah and that to me is you know that would that would raise a concern for me because that's you know definitely something that i had growing up and you know the naivete coming along with it but naivete and and you know 
social awkwardness or not reading danger, in and of themselves, I wouldn't say that they were. But without asking some more pointed questions, I don't know that I would be able to say yes or no. Interesting. So it does sound you know, that there are some things that may not be in place that trigger the typical reactions to things like stranger anxiety and those kinds of things. So, you know, I would just kind of see how she goes. And if there are issues that are addressed, I would address them, but definitely, definitely build on her strengths. Where do you take her, though, after she's been misdiagnosed? I mean, I just don't believe that she has PTSD. Well, I wouldn't say she's misdiagnosed yet. I would get a second opinion, either at a university setting or somewhere in a major city near you, and be able to find, you know, I'm happy to help you find a expert close to you or as close to you so that you can get a second opinion and also really be able to identify what her strengths are. And anything you do has to be built upon her strengths. I would also suggest that you seek someone who has experience with females on the spectrum because there can be distinct differences in how girls present right. versus boys. Exactly. And most and most doctors out there have more experience with boys than they do with girls. So they may miss things that you know, that, that need to be addressed. Right. Simply because of the gender. That's interesting. Right. That, that's a very important point to make. That so, if you need help identifying somebody, uh, we're, you know, I'm happy to reach out and help you. But it really does need to be somebody who can answer your questions from any perspective, but specifically the female one. And you got to know her strengths because that's what you're going to build upon, no matter what. Right. Okay. Great. That's help. So helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. So, Lynn, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say you drive diversity and inclusion in a corporate context of this issue. Um, You're laughing. Uh, Why are you that's laughing? Actually, that's actually it's kind of a separate aspect of, um, of what I do. I, I do try to keep my professional life separate from um, my advocacy life. Um, but uh, I actually work in a, in a large corporation, um, and... Diversity in general is a special interest of mine, has been for a long time. So that is, you know, something that I do and, and in the process. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, helping people in a workplace understand that there are people who have different abilities, different cultures. You know, some people might speak different languages. You know, that's larger rubric of diversity, but specifically in the area of, you know, with differing abilities, um, just, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, just because someone doesn't meet your eyes doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have something that, that, that the organization needs. So right. it's, it's a question of how do you find a way to work with people who have all different types of ways of engaging, different skills and abilities? I mean, some of my best professional partnerships within people who are, you know, extremely, I use the term neurotypical, but right, you know, right. very much the opposite of the typical traits of, of autism, you know, meaning, you know, they read people, you know, like books, and they're extremely, extremely social, and that they, they thrive on that versus, you know, a lot of us on the spectrum, you know, it's draining for us. So we can do it for a certain amount of time, and then we have to withdraw. Right. Um, right. And I, I think, any kind of, doesn't tolerance have to be built into some of that? Yeah. And, and I know that I have, you know, developed a certain tolerance on, of that. But, 
it also, you know, you get to a certain point where, you know, especially amongst family and things like that, you would say to people, you know, I can I can socialize for a certain amount of time, but I, I do need some alone time every now and again. Yeah. Um, it depends on how close you are. Well, you know, if, if it's family, it's one thing. If if it's something you have to do for work, you know, well, you, sometimes you have to have to do it. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I do feel and hear most often from my patients and their families that the children or the adults that have Asperger's specifically really do have difficulty with the explanation, the acceptance or the tolerance of them and of others for them when they're out in those settings. And so I think raising that awareness is really important because everybody's got something to offer, specifically, you know, people with Asperger's with high IQs and a lot of creativity just may not be coming out in the way you would expect. Well, and I, I also wouldn't wouldn't write off people who you know may not have typical IQ because everybody can do something. Absolutely, and I think what I teach most people is that if you're irritated, uncomfortable, or intolerant of something from someone, maybe you got to look at yourself and see what's being stirred up inside of you because it's most likely something there. So I think also the the biggest piece that I see is the meaning people assign to things. People who aren't on the spectrum tend to expect or think that there's a ton of subtext in there. You know, a kid runs around and doesn't pay attention to you. Oh, he's being rude to me. He, he doesn't respect me. He might respect you fine. He's just overloaded right now. Right, and that's my point, you know? that people, you know, what, why, would a, you know, why would a parent say that? Well, I think they would say that because they're not getting their own needs met or something's irritating to them about what this kid is doing. It has, right. may, has nothing to do with that kid who's just being a typical child. Well, it's just important to understand that there are differences in how people approach things. Right, and I think the key for uh, today's topic of Asperger's, it's important to really see that there are various presentations of it and various research topics out there about it and, and where it came from. Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it both? But at the end of the day, looking at it, identifying where the, the strengths are, what the needs are, addressing those strengths and needs is really the key to treatment because medicine is a small piece of it, but there's a whole lot of other stuff I think that goes along to push it and support and get it to where it needs to be. I think that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, support, adequately supported. Right. You know, I think that there's a ton of potential for most kids. It's just a question of do we know how to support them and how do we Right. And, and, that, and that's so important because early intervention is the key. And the only way you're going to intervene on something is if you have it addressed, you identify it and, and really know what it is for at least what it is at that moment. And as a child evolves, you, you keep checking in and you tweak things as you go to just continue that solid support. So I think, you know, everybody, if they're on that path, is really going to end up at a good place. So. Lynn, I want to thank you for your time, your expertise, your experience, uh, especially about for your honesty about yourself and your openness, because I think it allows people to feel safe and to want to come forward and speak out and support people of all different diversities, but specifically for Asperger's, because oftentimes it's awkward and no one knows where to go with it all. So thank you very much for your time and your openness. Well, thank you for having me on. So that was uh, Lynn Soraya. She's a Asperger's survivor, actually, and she's had it all her life and really didn't know the struggles she was having early on until she got older, but had enough support to get through it all until she was able to educate herself about what was going on. But she's an advocate now for disabilities in general, specifically Asperger's, and 
she sees it pretty much the same way I do, which is we've all got great strengths and we all have needs. Let's identify our strengths. Let's build on them. Let's identify those needs and get them met and move forward. Asperger's is a disorder somewhere on the spectrum of the pervasive developmental disorders if we have to categorize it diagnostically. And that's under the bigger umbrellas of the old autisms that we used to think of. Many people want to know, is it genetic? Is there medication? How did I get it? Can I get rid of it? What do I do? All those kinds of questions we can answer. Email me, call me, 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW, 1-855-767-4966. I'd like to thank all my listeners, my callers for today's show, my guest expert, Lynn Soraya, who talked openly about her own Asperger's and about her view of it, how she went through that life and how she ended up on her feet now as an advocate for anybody with a diversity and a uh, issue. She's got disability advocacy. She's really out there trying to teach tolerance in general, but specifically for Asperger's. I think it's very important. We learned a lot today, and I think what we really need to take away from this is, is there medicine for Asperger's? Well, there is medicine if we need it symptomatically to move the symptoms out of the way, but the bottom line is to identify the strengths of that child or adult, identify the needs, and meet those needs by building on those strengths, and every one of us can move forward and feel confident. And if they need a second opinion, you go out and get a second opinion. We had good callers today, and that was one of the things that was brought up. You know, they're not sure about the diagnosis. Well, go out and ask a question. You can seek two doctors. They may not agree, but that's okay because that's what you're trying to figure out, what really is the issue. We also learned about the uh, benefits of really looking at a child who early on is speaking or meeting their milestones of walking, talking, in ways that are kind of shocking, but really what's going on? You gotta look underneath that. It's, it is a good thing that they're talking or walking early, but really what's going on underneath there? Is it real walking? Is it real talking? Is it really connected intellectual process going on? Or is it really just repeating what they're hearing? And is that an issue somewhere down the line that will grow into something bigger? So looking at all of these things, early intervention, early assessment, early treatment, building on strengths, Looking and addressing needs is the only thing to do for anybody having any of these struggles. So thank you to everyone who called in, wrote in, emailed. We learned a lot. Thank you to Lynn Soraya. And please remember, podcasts are also available on my website and available on iTunes. My website, www.drsophie.com, or call me at 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW or 1-855-767-4966. Again, my book, Side by Side, The Conflict-Free mother-daughter resolution book and who doesn't need that follow me on twitter and facebook visit itunes to download the full version of andy grammar's keep your head up and most of all please don't forget to sweep but you gotta keep your head up oh, and you can let your head down hey, you gotta keep your head up oh, and you can let your head